welcome to Wrestling and Everything Coast to Coast with your hosts, Buddy Sotelo Esquire and Evan Ginsberg. Evan, will you introduce our guest today? Absolutely. It's my honor and privilege to introduce my friend Hurricane J.J. McGuire, master of wrestling ring music. He's done many, many entrance themes, WWF, WWE, WCW, 114. He's a member of Hulk Hogan's wrestling boot band. He was the character tone deaf on Hulk's Thunder in Paradise TV show and a former member of the multi-million selling group, The Gentries, uh, musical partner with the great Jimmy Hart. He is J.J. McGuire. Welcome, J.J. Hi, guys. How are you? Thank you, Evan. It's a real a pleasure to have you as our guest this week. Um, your resume is unparalleled. We've never had someone w who's had the kind of impact on wrestling that your uh, contributions have had towards it. And uh, the first thing I want to ask is, how did you get started in all this? Well, basically, uh, Jimmy Hart and I were in the Gentries together. And uh, I went down an audition, like I said in my book. Uh, I was up against uh, Jerry Lee Lewis's drummer and also uh, uh, two or three other. Uh, uh, Ray Charles's drummer was there and a couple of other guys. But they were excellent uh, studio-type drummers, but they weren't uh, rock drummers. Say. They were more rockabilly, blues, and gospel, you know, which I love as well. But they weren't hard rock drummers. So I was a hard rock drummer, and I came down. I was the last guy to go in and do the audition. And uh, we did a song called Going Down by Don Nick. It's been covered by lots of groups this decade. But I knew the song, and I had a double bass drum set. So I played it halfway through the song. They said, whoa, 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 stop. Jimmy Hart and his uh, lead guitar player, who was the musical director at the time. And I thought, <coughs> excuse me, well, I've scared them with this double bass drum setup. I guess that's it for me. So they said, hold on. So they kind of whispered one to one another. And uh, then uh, Wes Stafford, the guitar player, went out in the hall. And I figured, well, I, it's it for me. Uh, so I got to take my cymbals off the stand. And uh, as I was doing it, Jimmy, uh, Wes came back in, and he and Jimmy whispered each other. And I said, well, thank you guys for the audition. I sure appreciate it, and uh, I enjoyed it. Nice to meet you. And they said, real good, McGuire, because welcome to the gentry. Hmm. And I about fell over. I went, wow, I thought I scared you. They said, no, we like that. That's something unique. And, uh, yeah, you're exactly what we need. Because the gentry made it on a pop, you know, keep on dancing. I didn't join until 72, and we covered Neil Young's Cinnamon Girl. Uh, that he had on the album, but uh, we did it as a single, and it was worldwide uh, top 40 hit for us. But uh, the Gentries uh, were heavy. You know, that's a heavy song for the time. It's still fairly heavy. And uh, so I had seen them a year and a half before that at Toys for Tots at Freedom Hall in Louisville, Kentucky. I was on a bill with a regional group that we had a regional record called uh, Gary and Sherry Edwards, and we were the Embers. We were their backup group and uh we were on the same bill andy kim paul revere and the raiders you know all the groups that were big at that time uh were on the bill and uh our regional group uh successful group was on there too and then right after us i was standing out in front of the stage and wandering around and they said ladies and gentlemen here they are the hit group you all know the gentry and i thought yeah, I remember that song, Keep On Dancing. I, I never really liked it. I thought it was kind of a cheap song, you know, and everything. 
And I thought, oh, well, well, and I got ready to walk to the back to eat some of the catered food. I'll take advantage of that. And so all of a sudden, they whipped in to uh, Cinnamon Girl. I went, oh, my goodness gracious. Wait a minute. I mean, it was so heavy. I mean, unbelievable. Of course, they did the little keep on dancing. And that's when I was heading for the food. But as soon as they kicked into Cinnamon Girl, I went, whoa, wait a minute. They hadn't recorded it yet. They were just, you know, putting it on the audience to see how it went over and whatever. And uh, but that particular band that was that I heard play there a year and a half uh, prior to joining them, uh, those guys left the band. Uh, Butler, he went down. He was uh, vice president of RCA Nashville. Uh, all the guys wound up kind of in the administrative end of record business and whatever, you know, very famous. And uh, so that, that particular gentry uh, left. And so uh, Jimmy was put together, Jimmy Hart was put together a new gentry. So I came in on the second batch of gentry. And uh, we did uh, uh, recorded Cinema Girl or whatever. And uh, we just went on from there. Yeah. So that's so kind of where it how, started. How did they get involved in wrestling? How did, how did you, you know, I obviously not everybody that was in the gentries. I know, I know Evan Ginsberg. You cannot stump the great Evan Ginsberg on old school wrestling. I'm sorry, but no one can stump him. No one. And he'll know why I'm saying this when I say what I'm fixing to say. Uh, the first, uh, Jimmy and I, we were only day we had off was on a Sunday. Now, you got to remember that we were the opening group for the Gentries were as follows Steppenwolf, Chicago. They opened for us. Wow. Because they hadn't had any big hits yet. You know, we were touring and, and we were at the top of the bill and then it was they, you know. But anyway, back to Evan. So we had a Sunday off. It was the only day we had, we had off. We were, we were playing concert dates. We were uh, playing the feature club dates at the Big Daddy's Corporation off in Florida. They had one on the pier in Daytona down in uh, all the major cities in Florida. So anyway... Uh, on a Sunday, Jimmy said, McGuire, let's go to the wrestling matches. And I said, yeah, I like wrestling. I've watched it my whole life as a kid. And, uh, yeah, I enjoy it. Yeah. He said, okay. So we went down. He said, a friend of mine's wrestling. I said, who's that? He said, Sputnik Monroe, brother. Hmm. I went, yeah, I've, I've heard of Sputnik. Yeah, he's something, isn't he? he he's a great talker. Uh, yeah, cool. So we went out there, and we sat up in the very back of the auditorium in Orange County. And... Here comes Sputnik. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Evan's probably seen Sputnik in his day, I would say. He got a pop as big as Hulk Hogan. Yeah. Hulk. Unbelievable. I mean, this the roof was falling in on this place. And the fans just went crazy. And the people of color just went berserk over him. They they just took him in as one of their own, so to speak. And, and other people, too. But uh, he had a great... Uh, People of color following because of his banter in a way. Oh, that's right, baby. I, you know, he had all that Dusty Rhodes type stuff going before there was Dusty Rhodes stuff. And so when it was over, uh, he knew Jimmy from Memphis, you know, and but Jimmy never took his eyes off the ring through the whole thing. I go, hey, Jimmy, what do you think about it? He let me, who wouldn't even hear me? I mean, I'm sitting right like I'm close to you guys. And I knew that there was something there that he was looking at that really meant way big something to him. You know, and so then when it was over, we gave Sputnik a ride back to the hotel, and the people uh, threw mud all over our car and everything because they were mad at him. And I mean, you talk about a heel generating hate. 
wow. And uh, so anyway, we I got to meet him. He was the first famous wrestler that I ever met, you know. And uh, so we gave him a ride back to the hotel. I mean, we couldn't even get uh, uh, in the building or out of the auditorium without just mobs. I mean, you would have thought it was Hogan or somebody. Seriously. And uh, so that was my first encounter with a wrestler. And then from there, uh, Jerry Lawler, uh, a couple of few years later, we took some time off from the Gentries, and Jerry Lawler asked Jimmy Hart to sell his merch out on the gimmick tables in the lobby. Okay? So, uh, Jimmy was just selling posters and, you know, huckstering uh, the King uh, Lawler stuff, you know, out there in the lobby. He wasn't a manager or anything. And so, uh, King came up, and he said, Jimmy, did we sell some stuff tonight? And I was out there with Jimmy helping sell him the merch, you know, and in the lobby at uh, Rupp Arena, as a matter of fact, up here in Lexington. And so I said, yeah, King, we did. We knocked a home run tonight. It's really great. Let me tell you something. Every time the WWE or F in the day came to Rupp Arena, they pulled a curtain across the quarter of the auditorium. But when Jerry Lawler and Mid-South and whatever were there, they packed a whole arena. Hmm. I don't think uh, WWE ever packed the entire Rupp Arena unless it was a... Uh, pay-per-view or whatever but uh of course this is before wwf really got that big steam rolling momentum going and whatever but uh so anyway uh so lawler says to jimmy when i was walking down the hall with him after the, the gig he says uh jimmy you know have you ever thought about being a ring manager and jimmy looked at me and he looked over to king lawler and he said, no king he said how do you do that yes and king said don't worry i'll show you how well, the rest is history. But that's really the true story. And so we, so a few weeks later, I got a phone call, and it was Jerry Lawler and Jimmy Hart on a conference call. And, uh, McGuire, this is uh, Jerry Lawler. I said, hey, King, how are you? I sure enjoyed the show when I was up there a few weeks back. I said, I want to do a record. I want to sell a record out there in the lobby at the gimmick station. And uh, Jimmy and I said, uh, Jimmy said, if you can do it with him, you guys can put it together for me. I said, sure, King, I'd love to do that. He said, what do you charge? I said, well, wow, you caught me by surprise. I, I don't really know what to say. I'm honored just to be able to do it. He said, how about $1,000 for the first-class ticket to Memphis and the Hyatt Regency Hotel and all your food? I said, oh, King, when you need me tomorrow? Yeah. So, yeah. So this was 19, late 70s, you know. And so uh, that following Monday, I got on the plane. It's just what he said. We went to Sam Phillips' recording. Of course, uh, I already knew Sam Phillips through the Gentry because we had recorded our music there. And uh, Sam was executive producer of the Gentry, but his son, Knox, who recently passed away, sadly, was our actual hands-on producer. And uh, we did all that at Phillips' recording. And uh, so anyway, uh, came in. And so what we did is Jimmy and I decided that we would take Neil Sadaka's Breaking Up is Hard to Do. And rearrange it disco style. This was disco era, you know. So that's what we did. And I remember I, I rented a, a brand new Roland synthesizer that did all the really fabulous whoopty do sounds. That, you know, it was really something. I remember we paid extra hundred bucks or something to have a guy bring it over. And it hadn't even been released public yet, but it gave it that disco sound, you know. And uh, so Lawler, uh, Jimmy sang the track, and then Lawler sang along with him, and then we pulled Jimmy's 
lead track off of it and just heard Lawler. Lawler did a pretty good job for a you know, non-musician singer. And, wow, that thing sold like hotcakes. Now, this is before uh, WWF ever had a record. So, really, to me, the first actual uh, record done around wrestling sold was uh, Jerry Lawler. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, so that's how that started. And then we wound up doing uh, a thing for the Ballad of the Handsome Jimmy, Jimmy Bag. And uh, that's so great. And uh, the Boogie Woogie Man, you guys know him. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, he, stayed at, he stayed at Evan's house. Evan knows him like a brother. But, uh, yeah, what a great, uh, what great guys and great talents. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of battling over old school versus new school versus whatever. But I'll be honest with you. As Evan and people like us at uh, Age Rat, we've lived through a whole lot of school, you know. And um, I think that, uh, to me, today, uh, the characters uh, just don't, they don't run with it. See, back when we started and did all this, the talent, could, they could ad-lib for an, a day on anything, you know. And that's a real talent, and they all had it, and as history shows. But I would like to see a blend uh, of wrestling to come to a point today, in my opinion. Now, I'm the music guy. Uh, I, I am a, a licensed wrestler in the state of Kentucky because I owned at one time part of a, a regional wrestling company here. You know, throwing punches and taking bombs and whatever. I've done some of that. Evan's done that. He looked like Kato in the picture I saw. Yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway, uh, so, uh, yeah. I would like to see it uh, be a blend of the, the grandeur of old school and the seriousness of old school combined with elements of new school, too. But I think what we're seeing now is just is mostly just new school idiom. Uh, they would do well, in my opinion, to, to blend in, you know, make it serious, but put the glitz on top like it was, you know, uh, in the beginning, I mean, you know, Bobo Brazil and you know, a lot of uh, gorgeous George, come on. You don't get over the top any more than those kind of guys, you know. But yet they were technical uh, wrestlers and great entertainers. And I think wrestling business today as a whole uh, is concentrating more uh, on what they think is entertainment value more than uh, the serious part of how wrestling started. Now, that's just my opinion, you know. But I'd like to see a blending of old school and new school uh, for the fans, you know, and I think it's going to come to that because uh, it's just the, the grandeur of it is not there like it was in the day. Certainly not with empty arenas. And, <laughs> yeah, especially that. And that, that's killing wrestling in my opinion. Uh, JJ, you know, JJ out, of, out of all the ring entrance music you've done, what are some of the uh, ones that you're proudest of? Oh, Evan, uh, thanks for that question. I, I, I love them all, of course. But uh, I really, uh, I enjoyed a lot of uh, the uh, demolition thing. You know, uh, uh, that's one of my favorites. Uh, Shawn Michaels is the most played theme in wrestling. And uh, the fans, on a fan question, I think uh, that would be one of the top fan-like. Because he had so many appearances, you know, on so many shows. And uh, I just really like them all. And, and, of course, I like American Made that we did for Hulk uh, for WCW. But that's a tough question. I really love all the themes. 
I love the characters. I tried to put that love of the characters, you know, into the music to fit them. Uh, I, Jimmy and I, we didn't try to come up with themes that made us look like somebody. We came up with themes that made the characters look like somebody. So I had to do uh, all kinds of styles for it. You know, jazz, rock, pop, rap, you know, all that sort of thing. But I don't, I can't really say I have one favorite theme, but I, I just love them all so much. That's a hard question to pin down into one theme. But you were getting to a point, uh, to a question I really wanted to ask you, which is exactly what you were talking about. How do you match a song with a wrestler? What goes through your mind when you're thinking this here? I'm looking at Brutus the Barber Beefcake, you know, what? What sort of like, you know, music am I going to come up with with him? How did you see his character and translate that into musical notes? I'm fascinated with that. I'm fascinated with that process. Well, this is really strange. While you were reiterating that information, my mind was saying Brutus Beefcake. And then you spoke of Brutus Beefcake. And uh, that's a good example. Uh, we've got wrestling ESP here, obviously. Uh, Brutus' theme, uh, what I would do is, to answer your question from the beginning, is I would go to the arenas and I would watch the character. I would look at their gimmick. I would look at their outfit. I would look at their, listen to their banter. You know, take in all the elements of what they are. And then go back to the back. And I had a portable setup in the back right uh, next to the uh, locker room and uh, start putting something together. Then Jimmy would come back in between matches and go, McGuire, have you got anything for Brutus? I said, I think so. I'd play a little lick or two. And he'd listen and go, that sounds good. He said, check mark that. And when you go back home, you know, complete it. You know, we just do a little outline. And so then I'd come back home to my home studio. Those first things, Superfly, Snooka, and Brutus. Those original things were all recorded in, in uh, my bedroom at my parents' house on College yeah. Street here in And uh, uh, of course, I started out on a four track set. Uh, Brutus' theme was done on that. Uh, uh, so was uh, Superfly. But then I progressed to a reel to reel setup, then progressed to you know better machines as time went on. And we went to the studio. I would record uh, the basic rhythm track uh, at home. Uh, once I, got, I had a thing called an Akai Model 1214, which is an all-in-one uh, console that uses a thing that looks like a beta videotape, but it's cobalt dope tape, and it has superior sound quality. Paul McCartney had one. Uh, you know, uh, the heavy hitters, uh, Stevie Wonder had one. I had one. Uh, it was a big deal because you could actually record Pretty much close to studio masters, right with this portable setup. It was pretty big, but two people set. But I would take that to the Coliseum and, and uh, scratch out the basic rhythm track with a keyboard and drum machine, whatever. Then I'd take that home and refine that. And then, uh, you know, come back, either send it to the office or come back to the next show uh, the next weekend and hand it to them. So that's, uh, I hope that answers your question. You know, we did it in a lot of different ways. Now, uh, Jimmy usually tells a story. He says, yeah, we hired some guitar players. Well, uh, no, 
we, we, the only other guitar player that ever played on any of the things that we did was the guy that played on American Made. Uh, did some uh, diddly diddly lead type editions, whatever. I was ill and couldn't be there for the final mix. So uh, we, Todd Plant sang it for us. He's a great vocalist, by the way. Uh, the American Made. But he only way he'd do it, he wanted to use his guitar player. Well, I wasn't there to supervise that. So, uh, but anyway, they did what they did and mixed it and uh, went from there. But no, I played on the majority of the stuff. Uh, we just brought in very few. We brought in a sax player one time, and uh, we brought in uh, a couple of guest vocals. But in reality, I played 98% of all the instruments on the majority of the original wow. hits. I played everything. We didn't use the band. You know, I did it all. Wow. And Jimmy wrote the lyrics, and Jimmy made suggestions like when I did the rockers theme. You know, it just kind of went dun 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 dun. Jimmy said, "Wait a bit, McGuire. Can you sing how fast as they run to the ring?" I went, "Yeah, they're a blur." "Yeah, that's too slow." I said, "You know what, Jimmy? You're exactly right." Dun 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 dun. There you go. But if he hadn't made that suggestion, that might have been a dud theme, you know. So that's how we work. He, Jimmy, gives me the leeway, creates the music. Then he makes suggestions that the common listener would, would hear or make. And but together we have like ESP. We just look at each other and bingo boingo. We were able to fabricate uh, these things in that. And Jimmy wrote fabulous lyrics. I mean, the lyrics to uh, all those songs, you know, Demolition, Sexy Boy, and, you know, Jimmy did all those, that lyrical work, you know, and uh, together uh, we, it really wasn't all about me, it wasn't all about Jimmy Hart. It was about Jimmy Hart and J.J. McGuire. Jimmy had the spotlight, and I was kind of like the puppet master of the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, kind of like Vince was, you know. We were the puppet master. But uh, those guys already had the spotlight, and I wasn't worried about that. Uh, I just wanted to create good music, so I laid low. I didn't really tell people I was doing the music. People found out, just went crazy, and I thanked them, but... I never really was reaching for the spotlight because those guys already had it. And by them having the spotlight, I was able to add icing on their cake, so to speak. But my son came home from school a few years back, and he was 14 at the time. And he said, Dad, would you text these kids here? I said, what is this? He said, they asked me if my dad was the wrestling music man. And they, they didn't believe it. They said, would you text them and tell them it's really you? And so I did. And so I got to thinking, if kids that young were interested in what I did decades ago, then I probably owe it to the people and those kids to come out and let people know who I am and exactly what my role was in all. But for decades, I just I was invisible. I just you saw my name on the product, and, and the hardcore fans knew that I wrote a lot of the music, but, you know, uh, I wasn't that worried about being noticed, known that much. It uh, didn't matter to me. I was just having fun doing the music, making money. And uh, but that's why I decided to do things like this, and come out and talk to the people, because they were very interested. And I've had people come to meet and say, we came to see you. <coughs> and I said, well, Sting's right here. What are you coming to see me for? You got Sting right next, right next to me. I can't believe that you're coming to see me. He said, no, we've already seen Sting about seven times, but we've loved your music from 
day one. It's the fabric of our youth and so on and so on. And I'm just completely blown away by that. I, I never, I guess I never thought it was that important, you know. But obviously it was extremely important to uh, a lot of people. And so I figured they want to hear about it. So I just told Jimmy the other night, I talked to him and I said, you know, the, the reason I do these meet streets and stuff like you do is because for me, uh, the fans want to know uh, how we did the music, like the question you just asked. They want to talk about that. And so I want to I enjoy talking to the fans and, and answering their questions, whatever. And it's, it's a thrill for me, too. But they wouldn't have needed any music or me or Jimmy Hart or Hulk Hogan, uh, you know, WWF and uh, Vince McMahon and Pat Patterson and those people. Uh, they, they built a forum in the state for wrestlers, entertainers, I guess jugglers and magicians and whatever. But, uh, you know, uh, without the rest, uh, there wouldn't have been any need for me even talking today. So I owe it all to the wrestlers and the fans. I, you know, I wouldn't have a story uh, at all if it wasn't for the people, you know, that enjoy this and allowed me to use talent I was given, you know, to show that on a pretty broad stage. You know, I was fortunate. Which of the wrestlers were most appreciative to you and Jimmy for, you know, the music that helped get them over in certain in certain cases. Uh, would you say that in the first part? I, I couldn't hear you on the first part. Which, which of the wrestlers were most appreciative? Did anybody ever approach Yeah, which, which wrestlers really loved their, their theme? Well, they actually, uh, actually, all of them were honky. And, I mean, the guys wouldn't go out unless they had their music. I've actually been at WWF uh, shows. Uh, one time at Madison Square Garden, where uh, a famous wrestler said, I'm not going out there. Well, we can't find your music. Let's go something else. I'm not going. I'm not going. I mean, you know, you know, people paid money to see this guy, you know, but he's not going unless his music's there. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of panic over this. You know, uh, the boys really were insistent on their music. And uh, uh, I was appreciated from top to bottom, from management to uh, the guys that set the ring up, the ring boys. Everybody was always nice to me. Everybody. Everybody. Uh, Dusty Rhodes, uh, you name them, they treated me like I was gold because they really they realized that the music did play an important part of their character and what they were doing. It wasn't everything, but the bill of uh, demolition when I appeared at Heroes Legend uh, Fort Wayne here last year, he told me, he said, McGuire, he said, if you hadn't written that music for us, I don't think we'd have been as popular. I said, wait a minute, Bill. I said, wait a minute. I said, if y'all came out to a kazoo band, you'd still be one of the greatest tag teams ever hit a ring. He said, no. Nah, Watch nah. out. Vince may be stealing that. Music soon. We knew how to do really made a total package for us. And he was telling the fans coming up to him. I, I left my table for Vince. I take pictures of him. And he was telling all the fans coming up, hey, y'all, this is the guy that wrote my, our music. This is him. This is him. And some guy was walking by with a guitar that he's having different wrestling time. He handed it to me, so I started playing the demolition. Yeah. <laughs> people started clapping, and it was like a little impromptu show. But I realized how much it, all this means to the, the fans and the people. And I, I'm just thankful that I, I, I've done something that made people happy. Now, how do you how do you feel knowing that a hundred years from now 
the music of the gentries, your wrestling music will still be out there and people still enjoying it long after we're all gone. Well, I, I hope that's a, a truism. I'd like for it to be. Uh, I'm just, I, I, you know, I made myself available to situations that needed a person like me. I didn't sit at home and even though I could play all the instruments like a Todd Rundgren or a Paul McCartney or whatever, I didn't think I was those people that, oh, yeah, somebody's going to call me. No, I, I made myself available uh, to have these opportunities. And I, I left my home, the comforts of my home, and mom and dad and all that stuff. You know, I went out there and met it head to head, and I got a chance, and I ran with it. And that's just about all you can do. Now, I have a question, and it's maybe a deeper concept, which is why do you think rock and roll and wrestling have such a strong bond between them more than any other music I, that's a good question i think because of the energy level with both uh aspects. energy is in wrestling the energy that's in good rock and roll music um, it motivates people i mean you guys have been to enough wrestling matches to understand that and, and evan especially a live concert and so forth uh, it, it generates uh, a, uh, a level of excitement, and I like it because it takes people away from their troubles for a little while. That's why I got into I got into pop music. I was a classical trained musician, and I just like to see people dancing and smiling and having fun. And I knew that was for me, and I just stayed with that. So yeah, that's where I was also going with that, which is that where do you feel for you? There's that link between performing as a musician and you said you've done some wrestling stuff and and uh, with you you're promoting itself where do you feel there's that intersection between the two performance arts well uh they could do wrestling matches without music they had and they did but once the music is played and it attached itself to a character that's all she wrote uh, the promoters and, and the wrestlers and the fans, everybody realized that their this connection to music and character was uh, added a little extra zip. So, yeah. JJ, who are some of your, your musical influences? Any genre? Uh, yeah, Evan, uh, everything. You, uh, you kind of know what I like. We've talked about it off the record. Uh, I, I love, like you, I love uh, a lot of great that, uh, you know, like the, I uh, saw the Mills brothers do Glowworm Live. I was like 20 feet away from them. Couldn't believe it. I was only 10 years old at the top of the market in Chicago. My uncle something. He liked jazz. And, you know, so I was turned on to a lot of different jazz. And I like jazz. I like rock. I like pop. Uh, of course, most of my influence uh, wound up being in the rock field. The Beatles and Stone. And, uh, you know, uh, Cream and the heavy music and Jimi Hendrix, and, uh, but don't don't mistake me. Uh, my my father loved big bands. So he was World War II thing. I wasn't born until they were forty two years old. Hmm. And so every Saturday morning when he's off from work at seven thirty, he'd crank that radio up downstairs. You know, I'd get Glenn Miller and everybody. You know, uh, you know, I, I, whether I wanted to hear it or not, I was, I had to hear it. Yeah, and uh, I'm glad that I did. And I really appreciate and love all the great masters of 
jazz and uh, blues and uh, blue notes and you know all that stuff. Uh, Evan is more of an expert on all that than I'll ever be. But uh, and he's seen a lot of those great acts of where he lived up there and everything. And I'm just down here in a little small town. You know. But I love all music. Uh, I never was a, a big opponent of country music. Because people always came to me, oh, you're from Kentucky. I bet you you can do country music. And I go, no, country music is okay, but I'm not. It's not my interest. My interest is in other types. Of music. And people were kind of baffled on that. Well, you're not that far from Nashville. And I said, well, it's okay, but I like the the modern music. I call it. And so that's the route I had. But I've had uh, uh, music. I played in the stage jazz band when I was in high school. Uh, they loved me because I could ad-lib good. You know, I learned my scales, my chromatics, all that sort of thing. And so the teacher just, she would paddle half the, the, the guys in the band about once every day just because they'd be talking or whatever. And she never uh, lifted that paddle and touched me. I could talk all I wanted. But I was a piano player. Don't spank the piano player. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As one of the gentries, what was your greatest memory? Was there a particular gig, a particular, uh, you know, event that really sticks out? Sure. Uh, we did a gig up in Indianapolis, Indiana, at the uh, club down on the river that was really famous. I forget the name of it. It's called Pirate's Cove, I believe. And it was a pretty tough joint. I mean, they had bikers in there. And, you know, you, you didn't... Uh, you, if you weren't a pretty good fighter or a talker, you better not come in. But it was a real popular club. And uh, so anyway, the Gentries, we had a gig there. They said, well, your rooms are upstairs. We went upstairs, and they had prison mattresses thrown on the floor. Yeah. And mice running around. Wow. And I'm going, she said, a rib, isn't it? This has got to be a yeah. rib. And he said, it's a, I said, they're, they're, they were paying us an exuberant amount of money to perform, so you'd think this would be a, a beautiful, shiny new venue or something. It was just kind of a dump of a thing on the river. And we said, thanks a lot, but these rooms just aren't up to par. We'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, uh, if you'll pay us an extra, uh, 350 bucks, we'll buy, we'll get our own motel room down the road again. Okay. Okay. So they, they said, okay. We packed the place out every night. They made plenty of money. They didn't mind. But so what I'm getting to is, so we, uh, hit the last note of the evening. Okay, then we, thank you. So then we loaded up all our gear, jumped in the station wagon, pulling the trailer, and drove straight to Daytona. After playing the gig, we didn't get any sleep or anything. Yeah. And so we got there early at the Big Daddy's in uh, uh, Fort Lauderdale. And we were there early before the guy uh, come and open up to let us in to take our equipment in. I mean, we were flat happy. You know, from driving that distance and not sleeping and everybody in the vehicle together, I mean, the army would have been sent. And uh, so we got, we were early, so they had a little cold thing built around the doors where you walk in, but it's all locked up. We were so tired that we got, we went to the vehicle and got out pillows and laid in that coat because the air conditioning from inside the building was coming out from underneath the doors and kind of filling that enclosure around the doors. So we took our pillows and laid on the concrete and slept mm. about three hours until the guy showed up. And the guy shows up and he said, I thought somebody had been killed. 
He said, here's the gentry, ladies and gentlemen. We're all sprawl out on the uh, yeah. in front of the door. Wow. And, uh, but anyway, and then the next night, Colonel Sanders was the uh, guest uh, judge for a, uh, a, t- a wet T-shirt contest. Okay? Wow. And we, we were too. You know, we were judges with him. Good gig. I've already met the colonel. I'd already met the colonel in Kentucky because he had been at some functions that I'd played music at up So I already kind of knew him. And uh, he said, hey, it's good to see you again. And they went, how do you know the colonel? I said, and I told him, I said, wow. So anyway, but he had these beautiful girls, young girls on each arm. And so we stood up there with him, Jimmy Hart, myself, and uh, Colonel Sanders, Chicken King. And we judged that contest. And it was a big hit. We had a great time. He got back in the limo. We took the picture. There you go. Yeah. So it's just unbelievable. I mean, the things that we were catapulted into that had no idea it would be happening. But yeah, that's all real. That, that all really happened. There you go, buddy. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really great story. I wanted to know a little bit more about, like, when you, like, what sort of input would you get from the wrestlers to help customize the music for them? And what was that like working directly with Did any of the wrestlers say, you know what, this could be faster, or this I'd like to see something that was harder or or more edgy, or, you know, that they gave you feedback as to how they... I know you talked about the Rockers thing, but that was more from Jimmy Hart. I would like to hear maybe if any of the wrestlers you worked with gave you feedback. Uh, no, actually, no. Uh, everything, what, they, uh, what we came up with, uh, instantly come uh, down to the production room, and uh, they boss, we got something ready for you. And he go, okay, hit it. So I'd have my uh, little portable rig set up, and uh, you know, I'll have a drum machine and then I'd have some tracks recorded and play along with the the vocals the vocals go like this, Bob. Blah 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 blah. You know, blah, blah. I'm playing along with the track whatever. And uh he never turned down anything. Sounds great, guys. Press it up. Thanks, boss. Oh. Oh. And uh so no, the wrestler said, Well what do you got? But a Diamond Dell's page did come to us. And he said he wanted something like Team Spirit. I said, Alice, that's going to be tough because if we pop those same chords, they're going to screw it. <coughs> and so, well, get as close as you can legally. Okay, I wasn't too happy about it, but I said, okay. So anyway, I did a little demo of uh, uh, what wound up being the thing. And uh, uh, a friend of ours, uh, I wasn't able to get to Florida to uh, play the whole track. So uh, we had a friend of ours named Howard Helm who did some uh, recording work at the studio that we used, Morristown, down in Tampa. And uh, he took the set of outline that I did, and then he actually played the instruments uh, on Self High Five, but he just did what I played, you know. He just popped the same lick, arrangement, whatever. But I wasn't able to get down there uh, quick enough to get it constructed and... Uh, so uh, uh, we had him do a couple of things for us, but all he did was just make the arrangement and record whatever that I had and just uh, make the final work. But that was only, I think, one or two times in history of our uh, writing and doing that, uh, that we had Howard help us out. I was in a pinch, you know, when I couldn't get them. He's a real nice guy and very talented as well. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, 
Uh, I did the cassette outline of Kimmy's house in his son's room, bedroom. I took a Casio keyboard and my guitar and did a little hmm. track outline. And then Howard took that and did the final recording of her. He did a great job on that. But I'm glad he did because in case there's a suit, they'd have to go after him more than me. But there wasn't a suit because it was enough different that it didn't infringe on any copy. JJ, tell us about your book. Yeah. Here it is, ladies and germs. There you go. My life in heaven town. Yeah. Uh, the book is not, uh, it's not just about wrestling. It, uh, it talks about my uh, career in the most picture business at Glen Glen Sound Company, Hollywood. And uh, I worked with all the celebrities, uh, Henry Winkler, Bob Hope, uh, uh, Valerie Bertinelli, uh, Farrah Fawcett. I could have been dating and probably married Farrah Fawcett, but I didn't want Ryan O'Neill shooting at me. Yes. But uh, she actually, she actually there's a part in the book, she actually kissed me in the coffee room because I listened to her sad story about him. And uh, uh, But anyway, I don't want to tell the whole story because I want people to get the book. <laughs> the yes. book. But, uh, anyway, I worked with some of the greatest uh, A-list celebrities in Hollywood. And uh, that was really a great job. I was basically a feather duster. Uh, but, uh, Bob Hope came in, and he was doing the uh, vocal looping for his uh, military shows. You know, get a Christmas thing. And uh, he was looping the dialogue on some of it. And he came in, and I uh, said, uh, Good afternoon, Mr. Hope. Uh, my name's John McGuire. Nice to see you. He said, Ho, 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 wait a minute. I went, Yes, sir. Uh, he said, Listen, Mr. Hope's dead. That, he was, that was my father. He's long gone. He said, call me Bob. I said, can I call you Uncle Bob? He went, he laughed and went, oh, no, not another comedian. He said, I thought, oh, wow, I made the funniest guy and one of the funniest comedians in history laugh. Wow, I'm really doing something. Wow, I can't believe it. I'm still blown away by it. And uh, so, anyway, we had a little routine going there, going down the hall. And I said, well, uh, Bob, if, uh, what calls do you want to come through? Uh, do you need uh, cheese and beer on the set, or you know what? You know, my job was to feather dust for this celebrity while they're there. And uh, so he said, "No." He said, "I told nobody to call. Only person that's going to call might be my wife. Other than that, don't go to hell." I said, "Okay, we'll do that." And so, uh, uh, anything else you need? Here's uh, you can bring me at extension two four five, and I'll be Johnny on the spot. Whatever, take care of. He said, "John, you're a good old Southern boy, aren't?" He said, you know something? This is in my book, too. He said, y'all got good burgoo up there. I said, yeah, we invented burgoo. He said, man, oh, man, do you have a recipe? I said, yeah, somewhere. He said, next time I come back, I want that recipe. I said, okay, uh, Uncle Bob, I'll, t I'll sure do that. And so he said, you're something else. And, and, and he just was the most kind of kind guy uh, you'd ever meet. He's like your Uncle Bob. Mm. And I found that the biggest and greatest celebrities of Stacker were the most humble and normal acting people, you know. And uh, Henry Winkler, for example, same way. Nicest guy you'd ever meet in your whole life. Uh, just really nice people, you know. And I had the fortunate ability to work directly with these people and get to know them. So that was a good experience uh, for me and something I'll never forget. And it's all in the book, too. How, how do we order the book? Uh, you get the book, uh, you can go to eatsleepwrestle.com and get an autographed copy from John Cosper, my author, 
or you can order it uh, without the autograph and come and see me when the meet and greet start up again, and I'll sign it for you that way. Uh, you can get that on Amazon. My Life in Heaven Town on Amazon and EatSleepWrestle.com. Anything else? Anything else you'd like to plug? Oh yeah, uh, you guys for having me on. You know. Uh, oh, we're not done with you yet. We we just want to make sure you got in. You know, we're not pulling the plug on you. Where we just wanted no, no, to, to see if you we want to make sure. I so appreciate uh, that guys like like yourself are uh, you know do these shows and give people the opportunity to know a little more about the background things they might not know about. Oh yeah, no, I, I, I still, you know, I have a, a couple extra questions that I wanted to, to find out about with, with, you know, your, your creative process because it's just to me so fascinating. One thing that I sort of feel is that, you know, not to disparage on anybody else's hard work, but I find the wrestling themes of today are very flat. You know, they, they seem, they don't seem to have a lot of individuality behind them or anything that makes them memorable in the way your themes have stuck around over the ages. And you said, people have said, you know, that's part of my childhood. You know, now if I think of like the last four or five wrestling shows that I've seen, can I think of a wrestler's theme song right now? Not really, unless they're going with something totally retro. Why do you think that wrestling themes have gotten so just sort of genericized and don't have that specialty level to them currently? Well, one thing is because you have so many wrestlers now. You know, you have so many, so many different leagues. You know, 17 dozen wrestlers in each league. Mind-boggling how many people out there, talent-wise. Uh, you know, I think um, the characters, uh, when we did the music uh, during our time and whatever, the characters were phenomenal. Uh, I don't think that a lot of the characters today have that over-the-top pizzazz that the older uh, characters have. Uh, even even before uh, WWF kind of went Hollywood, so to speak, or, or, or Carnival, or whatever terms don't drop it on it. But the fans, uh, at that time, they liked the Hollywood Carnival-ish, over-the-top, colorful effect. And I think our music went along with that. But you don't have the color in wrestling today you had during all what I'm talking about. So it's hard to add a dynamic color to something that isn't that colorful to start. I'm not saying everybody and every wrestler, but there's some colorful wrestlers somewhat in business. But, you know, uh, it's just become big business and uh, corporate. And when WWF was run by two people owned it, four people ran it, uh, you know, you could. Uh, uh, it was a lot simpler, and uh, the characters really uh, like Honky. I saw him the other night. He said, "McGuire, we didn't think this thing would last a couple of years." He says, "So we put 190 percent into it. We figured it wasn't going to last." And I said, "Well, y'all sure did, and thank you very much. You are a beautiful audience." <laughs> and uh, I did uh, his theme as well. And like I'm saying. You know, colorful. Just look at his outfit. Look at him and Jimmy Hart in the promos. They look like they run it through Liberace's closet. Yeah. I hadn't got any of that. Today. What would be more exciting for you? A, a musical solo or a wrestling promo in front of a crowd? 
Try that again, please. Uh, if you had a chance to solo, you know, for your band, or to actually cut a promo for a wrestling crowd, what would be more exciting for you? That's a good question. Uh, I like them both the same. They both have elements that are dynamic and exciting in their own way. Uh, I, I love to perform. Uh, I do a one-man show where I do a few of the wrestling things. I do I wrote for Baywatch. I wrote Under Paradise. You know, it's not just all wrestling. It's a blend of things that were bought and sold in the marketplace. And uh, I, I love to perform. And because you got one chance at it, it's like uh, the, the promos and stuff, uh, live stuff that WWF uh, talent did in the day. And before that, uh, you know, uh, you got to be able to project. You know, when, when the camera turns on and the mic's on, you've got to get going or you'll be left behind. And I like performing, but uh, I probably have gained the most traction of attention through the scene work, obviously. That's really interesting. And then also, you know, we didn't really, really touch on your uh, Thunder in Paradise uh, experience. And so I'd like to just get a few minutes in of what it was like, you know, being on a set versus being in, in musical performance versus being in the ring. You know, those are all performances, but in very different worlds. That's correct. Uh, well, uh, Jimmy called me and said they need an end theme for the show. They're not real excited about the opening scene, but they've already spent a lot of money to get the uh, video footage, uh, film footage to go with what they've got. But they uh, don't have an end scene yet. And uh, can you come up to something? Like, yeah, it seems to me like if it's a beach show and everything, whatever, they need something reggae. Said, yeah, sounds good. See what you can do. So and it took me about 10 minutes to come up with Thunder and Paradise end thing. <coughs> so I called Jimmy and I played over the phone to him. He said, sounds good. He said, can you, can you come down a day from tomorrow? I said, yeah, I'll get, I'll get in the car and drive down because i got some friends down there. He said, no, we got a hotel room for you and everything before. Come on down. Okay. So I took the track down, and then Jimmy and I got together, and Jimmy wrote the words. He heard the, the, the rhythm track, and then he sat there. When the sun goes down in paradise, girls look pretty, who they look nice, you know. Right out. Okay, so Burke Bonin and Schwartz, who also produced the uh, Baywatch show, they're producing Thunder and Paradise during their time off in the summer down at Disney in Orlando. So they came to hear it. They sat four or five feet in front of us. Uh, I hope I didn't spit on them when, when they were playing. But they sat there with their arms crossed. We played the theme, and Jimmy, I had the tracks going, and I played along with it too, and Jimmy sang the lyrics live. We got to the end of it. They leapt out of the chairs and started hugging us, and kissing us, and shaking and high-fiving and going crazy and going, oh, my God. I mean, these guys were on cloud nine. And uh, I was kind of taken away. I thought, maybe, well, this not, is this some kind of work or something? No, I don't know. And uh, so they were just ecstatic. And so then Greg Bonin comes up to me and, and, and says, oh, so they shook our hands. That's it. And then... Uh, Greg, uh, Doug Schwartz said, fire that reggae band out there on the beach. We don't need them anymore. They're gone. Fire them right now. So they'd had a segment in one in the pilot show where they had a reggae band. Chris Lemon played a keyboard and sang something, whatever. But those guys were true Rasta people, and they couldn't speak fluent English. So when they heard that and saw how we looked, goodbye to them. 
Mm-hmm. And then Greg Cohen comes up to me and says, McGuire, how long are you planning on being down here? I said, well, I brought four pairs of underwear and stock. Yes. Figured I'd come do the theme, and we got lucky here on this, and I was going to visit a friend and go home. He said, no. He said, you better get out to Target today and buy plenty of underwear and stock because you're on the show. You're a character on the show. You. I went, what? Hello? Did I hear that? What? What? Another example of my life in heaven. He said, yep, you're on the show. You're a character. What would you like your character's name to be? I went, is this real? I said, how about Tone Deaf? He went, perfect. Write it down in the script. Tone Deaf, I said, who he is? Told the PA. Okay, great. So I went to Target, bought more underwear and stock. And then I was in the show and featured on it. Wrote the theme and then wrote a lot of the montage music for it. And was a character on the show. So uh, that is just another unbelievable moment. You know, didn't expect that. And uh, it was a great experience. And the people were nice. And the production crew uh, was great people. And we all got along great. Just a fabulous experience. Hulk was kind enough to uh, include me on the show. And because uh, Hulk was one of the executive producers, he could have said, no, I don't want McGuire on the show because he looks like a jabroni. No, oh, uh, he wanted me on the show. And, uh, but, but they, they came up and they had to talk to Hulk about putting me on the show. After we played the theme right there. Hulk wasn't even there. Yeah. And uh, that was their idea. And then he then Hulk came wandering in after all this happened. And said, well, Jimmy Jam had you and McGuire do. Said, well, we got the theme and they want McGuire as a character too. Hulk said, great, McGuire. Yeah, you need to be a character on the show. Great. Hmm. Yeah, okay, great. I'm here. Here I am. So that's how that went. Wow. Well, that's you know, really. Yeah, you're not looking for over, but you trip, and there it is. You know. Wow. Crazy. Wow. No, you really had an incredible uh, life when you got and all the things that you were involved in. I just uh, wanted to know any thoughts that you have for the future of where wrestling is now, and also. The future of wrestling music, where do you think it might be headed uh, in the next decade? I don't think that the wrestling music is quite as predominant as it was. Uh, we did what we did. Uh, it, it's an important part of it, but it's not as important as it was. We were, I'm not saying that we were, well, I guess we were the cause of it. I don't know. But uh, me, the music, like you said, a lot of it has become uh, generic. And, uh, but there's still some pretty good music, too. But the music isn't featured uh, at a, just as a high of a level as it was we've done what we've done. And I think there's a future for wrestling music, but not like it was. Not like it was. You don't have characters to back it up as dynamic as you did. Uh, you have some dynamic characters. But, gosh, let's, let's admit it. Everybody came through that curtain was dynamic. You know, uh, all the way when Gorgeous George came through that church, that's all she wrote. You know, uh, you know, and that was that was uh, Hollywood over the top stuff, what his, his character. You know, and uh, uh, if I remember correctly, Evan, you correct me on this, but didn't he and Baron Von Rusty change characters? Didn't they exchange characters? In other words, the Baron came out in the cage, they did all that stuff. And uh, but, he felt, but George and he got together and they decided to swap the character. Have you ever heard that story? No, I, that I'm not familiar with. Yeah, I, I was told that story. Look into that. 
The okay. House of Genius figure that out. Okay. Uh, uh, anyway, but uh, entertainment is what's important here. All the notes in the world and being a talented musician or classical artist or whatever, that's good, that's okay. But the bottom line is entertainment. You have to construct these things to entertain people. If you're just doing it to entertain yourself, that's one-dimensional. But like we wrote the wrestling scenes to be three-dimensional and match a three-dimensional character. So the music had to fit a three-dimensional action. And that's what we did. And I'm just happy that I had the opportunity uh, and, and got to know some greatest wrestlers that ever lived and worked directly with them and do the music. It's just been a blessing for me. And wrestling given me uh, the highlight of my life. Wow. That's wonderful. Uh, make sure that you uh, give the contact information so that people would know how to get your book if they're interested. Yes, uh, you can contact me uh, for bookings or appearances or questions or whatever you have. Uh, you can reach me at J McGuire. That's all lowercase. Uh, it's spelled J, one J. Uh, M-A-G-U-I-R-E 325 at gmail.com. That's uh, Booking whatever you got, send it there. And again, you can get my book. Plug, plug. It okay? My Life in Heaven Town. There it is. Hey. Uh, you can on, uh, hey, look, there's me and Hulk Hogan. Recording yep. the album. You guys have seen, seen that picture. There and there's a lot of cool pictures in here of a lot of your favorite wrestling stars today. And of course, here I am in the wrestling boot band. See that? Yeah. Anyway, but uh, you can get the book at eatsleepwrestle.com for an autographed copy. And it's very affordable. It's only like fourteen ninety five or whatever. Uh, even if you're out of work, you should be able to afford to buy the book. Yeah. And, Oh, uh, and then you can also get it, My Life in Heaven Town, on Amazon.com. Wonderful, wonderful. You've been a fantastic guest. Really appreciated your time today. We'd love to have you as a guest in the future. Evan, do you have any closing words? Uh, Any future future projects you'd like to mention, JJ? Here's my closing statement. Let me get it straight. God gave me talent. So I took it to the greatest show on earth, traveled the world with the greatest of all time, unbelievably entertained people of color in all walks of life. Who knew that wrestling is such a powerful force? I did. That's an amazing note to end on. Thank you so much. We'll see everyone next week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks.